Welcome to Talking Robots, the podcast with an inside view on the science, technology, and business of intelligent robotics. Hi, I'm Sabine Howard from the Laboratory of Intelligent Systems at the EPFL in Lausanne, Switzerland. Today we'll be talking to Ron Fearing, who is the director of the Biomimetic Milli System Lab at UC Berkeley. His micro-flying insect has pushed him to the limits of the tiny with special development kits and manipulators. It's the size of a fly, flaps like one, and might even be landing on your sandwich pretty soon. Hi Ron, welcome to Talking Robots. Oh, thank you very much. Glad to be here. With the Biomimetic Milli System Lab, you've been concentrating on making incredibly small autonomous robots, such as the Micromechanical Flying Insect or the MFI. What is the vision behind this project? What we want to do is to make the uh, what will end up being the world's uh, smallest flying robot very much uh, inspired by what uh, real flies can do. So the the idea is that if we understand what it takes for a a fly to uh, be able to maneuver, be able to um, fly very quickly, but also to be able to make very sharp turns, um, we'll be able to take that and put that into our uh, robot vehicle. So our our vision is looking at something like a a giant housefly, which weighs about one-tenth of a gram. Um, A good good way to think about that is uh, uh, like like a paperclip probably weighs a a, a gram or two. So you can probably think about having ten ten flies weighing as much as a a paperclip. So by building a uh, very small machine, uh, we'll be living in sort of the same environment like, like the flies are. So we have to be thinking a little bit like what well, how a fly thinks. So, for example, you know, we have several issues here. One is is how do you get the basic uh, system to, to fly and take off and the flapping wings? And the other part is how do you actually get it to do something, something useful? So maybe I should talk about uh, uh, the, the first part, which is the, the mechanics. So looking at uh, what our, our colleagues, such as uh, Michael Dickinson, have, have done in terms of understanding how the flies work, our goal starting in, now started, we started originally in 1998, was to figure out what, what is it that the flies need to do with their wings to get these great lift forces and also these great, um, uh, we call them control moments, or, or the other forces that are responsible for steering. And what we found and what Michael Dickinson has found is that something like a, a fruit fly will be beating its wings uh, almost 200 times a second. And by controlling what the orientation of the wing is as it's beating, that's what is responsible for such great uh, controllability. So what, what the fly needs to do as it's flapping its wings is not just, it doesn't flap at all like a bird uh, flapping up and down, but the fly wings kind of move in a horizontal stroke plane, more more back and forth. And at the end of each stroke, at the top and the bottom, uh, the wing has to flip. So the wing kind of rotates from uh, pointing up upward to pointing downward. Uh, it's basically like a plus minus 45 degree rotation. So on what's called the, the downstroke, uh, the wing wing surface will be facing uh, at a 45 degree angle. And then in the upstroke, the wing will flip over and be 45 degrees uh, the other direction. So that's sort of the, the real the real secret in the in the beating wings of the fly, 
is that the fly is generating useful lift forces in both the uh, downstroke and the upstroke. So our challenge was, well, how do we uh, build a robot mechanism which could also uh, flap its wings at uh, 200 times a second? So how did you do it? Uh, and so when we started the project, we looked at the, the available technology and any, anything that was moving at, at 200 times a second was built of uh, you know, very, very heavy uh, materials uh, and driven by uh, very powerful motors. And there's really no way that those things and that, that technology uh, could ever be you know, scaled into something that would weigh a, a tenth of a gram. So we took a, a slight lesson from nature. When we look at uh, how nature builds its joints, it doesn't use uh, you know pin joints and ball bearings and things like that. It uses something that more uh, you know is, is a bending element, so something which can uh, bend back and forth, but not uh, not have to have any any rubbing. And we call those uh, flexor joints. So it's from a, a flexible material which goes between uh, two rigid links, and it can bend back and forth, say plus minus uh, uh, 60 degrees. Uh, but it can't rotate uh, continuously. So we took that uh, inspiration from nature, and then we built up a, a whole mechanism which goes from our artificial muscle uh, up to the, the wing motion. And a lot of uh, the, uh, complexity here and things we needed to uh, invent along the way. Uh, this, this flexure technology uh, really, when we started out, wasn't, wasn't suitable for these large range of motions. People have been making... Uh, flexures for uh, precision machinery where you'd have uh, mechanisms which are just moving a few microns or move, moving just a, a few degrees. So we had, we had to come up with a way to uh, make these uh, uh, flexure structures which would go through very large range of motions. And the way we did that is by uh, combining together um, two, two flat elements. One flat element is uh, very rigid and very stiff. Uh, right now we're using uh, uh, carbon fiber, and uh, the other element is a thin uh, uh, plastic uh, material, which is uh, very flexible. And those two materials are, are sandwiched together, so we get the combination of a, a very stiff material for the uh, the links and a very uh, flexible material for the joints. And this is all um, uh, cut out using a, a laser micromachining process uh, that uh, that was invented in my lab, which lets us take a uh, basically from a, a flat drawing of what all the, the, the links and joints should be, um, finally cu cutting out all those pieces. And in, so, in sort of one one assembly, we have the, the entire mechanism at least flat. And after that's all uh, cured and bonded together, it can then be uh, folded up into the, into the 3D structure. And what type of sensors is your robot equipped with? Uh, so, so currently, our... Our robot is, is mainly working on, on the mechanisms that are required to get it to, uh, to lift off. The sensors we're thinking about very much are, are inspired by what the, uh, the real flies use. Uh, you know, real flies, we, we think, don't really um, you know, see things the same way we see things. They don't recognize um, you know, things like uh, doors or windows. What they instead use, for the m most part, is a, a technique called optical flow. In, in optical flow, what you see is uh, as things are moving towards you, you can tell that they're, uh, you know, kind of expanding. Or if you move your hand towards your, your face, you'll see the, 
um, kind of the hand uh, expanding in size. And so they're uh, very sophisticated sensors in the real flies that can uh, see this expansion effect and use it to avoid obstacles or avoid getting uh, hit by you know, hit by fly swatters, for, uh, for example. And so what we want to do is to take that te- optical flow technology, uh, miniaturize it, and put it on uh, put it on the MFI. Uh, so we've been uh, working with some uh, some collaborators who've uh, you know made some prototype optical flow uh, chips, and we've tested those on a on a bit larger uh, vehicle. Um, like the, the chips now are you know, several millimeters across, and a little bit too heavy with the with the optics. Uh, but we're very interested in uh, you know miniaturizing those so they would go on the, on the fly. So that's the first sensor: is this optical flow used for obstacle avoidance. Um, even more fundamental than that is the basic type of sten- sensor it needs to just be stable. That is, um, if you think about a very small fly with two beating wings, if the wings beat a little bit different from, say, the left side to the right side, you're going to get these very large um, moments which can cause the thing to to tumble out of control. So the most important sensing on there is um, various kinds of rate sensors. These are angular rate sensors which will be used to tell whether you have a misbalance between the two wings Basic for the basic stabilization control. Um, These are also uh, can be inspired by what's on on the real flies. Real flies have uh, these sensors on them called haltiers, um, which are the, basically the modified hind wings in, in the fly act as these gyroscopic sensors. Um, so we're very interested in uh, putting those types of sensors onto the onto the MFI. It turns out that. Uh, there's been a lot of advances in the last uh, few years in the, in the area of MEMS, microelectromechanical systems, which have come up with some uh, very small um, gyroscopes on a chip, which we think would be uh, very appropriate uh, for the fly. A- another type of sensor, which is uh, very easy to make, we've, we've uh, uh, have prototypes of these in the lab, is something called a ocelli sensor. Uh, the ocelli are the organs on the insect's head which uh, basically allow it to detect where the horizon is. So there's a few photoreceptors on, on top of the head, and they can tell that the sky is generally brighter than uh, uh, than the ground underneath, and those sensors can be used um, in a very basic way to make sure the fly is, is flying with its, uh, you know, flying right side up rather than upside down. So we think those the combination of those sensors, the optic flow sensor, the gyroscope sensor, and the acelli, provide the you know, basic type of sensor you'd have on, on the MFI so it could fly around and, and avoid hitting things. At this stage, would you say that the MFI is capable of taking off or buzzing off? Where we are now is that on the, on the test bench, we've shown uh, that our, our mechanisms can generate enough lift to, t- to take off. Uh, the, re- there remains a couple of very important issues to, to actually have uh, free flight. I'd say the n- number one is uh, finding a, a vendor who's willing to make a, a 50 milligram battery for us. We have, have yet to find a, uh, a small enough battery. Uh, so for, for takeoff at the moment, what we're working towards is using uh, very fine wires to do the takeoff. Uh, my my uh, current collaborator and former student, Rob Wood, who's at, uh, at Harvard, has, uh, has shown takeoff with these external, 
external wires. Um, so the mechanism itself is is capable of uh, taking off, but we need to put on, uh, find the miniature battery and then the miniature electronics to uh, drive the motors, and as well uh, the miniature sensors to get all those all those things onto the onto the fly. And when you watch it take off, do you have the feeling that it looks like a fly? Do you do you feel like you're watching a bionic fly, basically? Uh, de- definitely, yes. You've got the two uh, uh, two beating wings um, in um, uh, Robert Woods' uh, uh, version of it. The wings are going at about a oh, about a hundred times a, a second. So very much, it's a, a blur of the wings. Um, you can hear a, a buzzing sound, and you can uh, uh, see it uh, very very gracefully uh, t- take off. Um, he's also using a, a guide post so that. Um, you don't doesn't need to worry about the the stabilization. It seems to me that it's very challenging to have a robot which is so small. I mean, why is it necessary to aim towards this miniaturization? So it's very interesting to be able to make the the, the robots very small. If we think about uh, robots that are working in a uh, a human environment, um, really, if you if you make a robot that's the size of a person, it would actually be quite. Uh, probably quite annoying to be interacting with that robot like in a crowded office environment because you always have to worry about you know it, it running into you or you know just just getting in the way so I think in a, in a human environment having the robots which are, are very small uh, certainly makes it uh, number one is safety you don't have to worry about um, the, the robot hurting the person because they're so small uh, number two um, they become much more maneuverable they work they have to to be able to uh, fly through a doorway is much easier if you're something that's the size of a fly compared to something the size of a, of a wastebasket. Um, the, the third point is that really what, what, what would you like to do with these flies? We think of applications where there'll be lots of flies working together, where, the, where there is a trade-off between having a you know very big, smart robot and having um, these small robots. I think the small robots... Uh, at least to start with, by themselves are not going to be as smart as a, a large robot. You know, for example, they're not going to have a computer on them which can, uh, you know, recognize pre- uh, specific uh, faces or maybe be able to uh, understand speech. So the, each individual robot will be a little bit, you know, not quite as smart. So how do you do something that's overall smart and useful? Is to combine lots of these small robots together. And, for example, in a, in a search application, it's much easier to, to search, a, uh, uh, search a large area using um, hundreds or, or, or thousands of very small robots than it is to use one uh, very big, smart robot. So getting small means that you can have lots of robots working together. And why is that? Well, as they get very small, they become much, much cheaper to make. Just looking at the raw materials which go into a tenth of a gram robot, I mean, you can use as expensive materials as you want, just because uh, you know ten- tenth of a gram is not going to not going to add up to much much cost at all. Uh, for example, the, the carbon fiber is kind of an expensive material; it might cost uh, oh, you know, a couple thousand dollars a kilogram. But you're only using a you know, less than a tenth of a gram of material, so the, you know the raw raw material cost in a small robot is uh, very small. So if you go to um, small robots, the, the costs um, also come down. So I think there's a lot of advantages to, to the small robots. Uh, another one is um, uh, maneuverability and uh, cluttered spaces. For example, one of the applications we, we think about 
is after an earthquake, if a, you know, there's been a building collapse and you want to see if there are uh, survivors inside, it's much easier to have a, a very small robot, which can get into very small crevices, than, than a big robot. Uh, another application, maybe more, more every day, um, just for inspection of, um, you know, for, for cleaning of uh, ventilation systems, um, you know, much easier to have a, a small robot go in, in something like that than a, than a big robot. You were mentioning the lack of small batteries. What are the other challenges when making these milli systems? Uh, so batteries are, are uh, definitely a, a big challenge. What it, we think is going to be a, uh, a big problem is, is uh, still stabilizing this. Um, that is, getting it to uh, hover stably and uh, uh, fly nicely. Um, just because the, the misbalances of an, in, in the actual construction of the machine uh, people uh, still have challenges even controlling uh, small, uh, you know, small miniature helicopters. Those can still be a challenge to control. And one of the things that's going to come up in, when these are free-flying is that the environment we uh, live in and, and work in is actually pretty complicated from, a, from an airflow point of view. So for us, a, you know, a small gust of wind, you know, three, a, a you know, five-kilometer-an-hour breeze is, is, is not a big deal. But if you've got a, uh, you know, a flying robot which has a top speed of, you know, 10, ten kilometers an hour, that, that uh, five-kilometer-hour hour breeze um, you know, becomes quite, uh, quite a problem. Uh, I guess a good example would be, like, you know, a person trying to, you know, wade across a river full of rapids. Um, very, uh, very challenging. That's sort of what the, uh, the airscape may be to these uh, small uh, flying robots. You've been developing tools for rapid prototyping of very small robots or, or some type of kits. Uh, what type of robots can you create? So w w along the way of uh, uh, you know building these uh, small robots such as the MFI, we, we've had to be doing a lot of uh, what we call sort of production engineering, like de designing uh, processes that allow us to build these uh, small robots. Uh, so we've been uh, fortunate to have uh, access to uh, laser micromachining equipment. Um, that tends to be kind of kind of expensive and, and, and kind of slow. And if we really want to, you know, create a, create a technology which will allow other people to, to be able to build these small robots, um, we need to think about things that, that don't require um, like a $100,000 laser micromachining system. So we were very interested in, you know, coming up with you know, how do you could could you build a robot without requiring that that fancy equipment? And the way we came up with was to think about pre-manufacturing a bunch of the components which go into a whole class of uh, milli robots. So we think about the uh, uh, using a kit of parts approach. So if you wanted to build a uh, a small robot, so you want to build a robot with a, say a, a crawling robot with with six legs. Um, what, what sort of kit components would that need? Well, that would need um, links and joints uh, for the legs. Uh, more links and joints could be used to create the body. Some uh, actuators and sensors and, and computers that could all be uh, combined together. So what we thought of is kind of standardizing, in, in some sense, on, on building robots using the, our uh, flexure technology. So rather than making a very general-purpose kit of parts, which would have, uh, you know, ball bearings and conventional machined elements in it, we would restrict ourselves to building things with um, small, flat, 
plates and uh, small flat joints. So the idea, um, now you take the, a whole collection of, of parts, of links and joints, and you design up a robot, which will be, be made by combining these plates and links together to form limbs, limbs in the body. Now, now these individual links that you're building a robot, which ends up being about a centimeter or two across, um, they're actually kind of small and a little bit, a uh, little bit tedious to, to handle uh, manually. Um, if you handle these kit of parts, you know, with tweezers under a microscope, uh, it quickly get uh, r- r- rather tiring um, and, and prone to error. So what we decided to do is come up with a, a very simple robot uh, that could, that would be very low cost. And this, what this robot does is is very specialized. It's designed just to handle the parts, the kit parts, which go into building uh, these these milli robots. And we came up with a system. We call it the uh, ortho tweezer system. It's uh, very simple. It's got two uh, fingers which are perpendicular to each other, and these fingers um, have uh, a way of handling uh, small bricks. Now these these bricks are about uh, 100 microns across, and the system can pick up a brick, rotate a brick, uh, place place a brick, and basically has a general capability of of manipulating bricks. Okay, so how, how do we now link between handling bricks and handling these small kit parts? So what we do is um, to handle a, a flat plate, which may be you know millimeter by by three millimeters, we atta- we temporarily attach a small brick to it. And this small brick now can be very easily handled by the manipulator, so we can pick up the small plates and combine together uh, a plate, a joint, and another plate, and that makes a, a very simple limb with a, two links and a, and a joint in between. So the entire uh, uh, robot system, uh, the milli robots, can be made by combining together these kits of uh, individual components. And so then what our, what our goal is in this is that we have a, a programmable system where we're working on, on the software now to be able to, uh, from a palette of parts, um, you know, specify that you'd like to have, um, say, six, six legs and you'd like it, the thing to be two, two centimeters long and be able to build uh, sub-assemblies of these individual joints and then automatically specify that so that finally the... Uh, uh, Milly robot would be automatically constructed. Do you think high school students could use these kits and develop their own micro robots, which would be crawling out of their pocket at the end of class? That's what. So one of one of the goals of this, this the desktop uh, prototyping system is that we would you know, enable lots and lots of uh, you know interested designers to to be able to um, you know to build the robots at this scale. Um, certainly, one of our goals would be that it would be accessible to. Yet even high school students, so that you know people who have ideas about building a small, small robot, uh, would be able to, to build it. Um, and I think that's this could be a very important thing because there's so much to be uh, done at this uh, at the milli scale with the milli robots that we'd really like to, you know, unleash uh, you know hundreds of of uh, people who would you know be interested in designing these systems to actually you know try try these things out and come up with you know. Know, all sorts of novel things that, that no one else has, has thought of yet. Let's talk a bit about the future now. Do you think we're going towards ubiquitous robots present in our everyday environment with these really small systems? 
Yeah, I, I think one of the, the places we'll, we'll see the, the ubiquitous robots will be, I, I'm hoping will be the, uh, the types of, of milli robots that, that people are working on. So you have, have robots that will be unobtrusive and, and helping uh, helping in, in the background without uh, you know, having to directly um, uh, you know, interact with people. Maybe they'll be monitoring for uh, pollution or, or, or temperature and you know, just uh, comfort, uh, you know, keeping an eye on things maybe in, a, you know, in, in someone's house, just kind of monitoring, making sure everything's uh, uh, going, going the way it should be. Uh, we'll, we'll see also other robots, I think, in, uh, in, in the service industries. I'm, I'm thinking that in, in the area of the medical, we'll see robots used uh, much, much more frequently, everything from, uh, you know, surgery to, uh, you know, physical assistance for people who are, who are recovering. So I think we're going to see more, more and more uh, uh, robots around. Uh, entertainment robots, I think, will also uh, start to become uh, more, more ubiquitous in the next uh, uh, five or ten years. Um, I think there's going to be a uh, kind of a trans, uh, maybe not a transition, a uh, maybe some sort of unification between, you know, video games, uh, virtual reality, and, and, and robotics. That should be, uh, you know, very interesting to see. 20 years from now, in which fields will robotics in general have had the biggest impact on our lives? I, I, I think a lot of people are, are thinking um, that the, uh, the human assistance, that is, the, you know, the world's populations are um, getting uh, older and older. Um, people still want to live uh, independently. but So having some sort of robot assistant that can just help people with the, the everyday, uh, you know, everyday life, whether it's, uh, you know, preparing a, preparing a meal, um, cleaning up afterwards, you know, assistance and getting, um, you know, up out of a chair or assistance walking, making sure you're not, not falling. I think that's really going to be a big, big area in the next, uh, you know, 20, 20 years from now. Thanks, Ron, for being here with us on Talking Robots. Oh, my pleasure. Pleasure to talk to you. This concludes this episode of Talking Robots with Ron Fearing on Millie Systems. Thanks for listening. See you in two weeks. Bye-bye. Talking Robots, the inside view on robotics. For more information on past and upcoming podcasts, visit our website at lis.epfl.ch.